In June 2022, Yoko Widodo, the president of Indonesia, went first to the Ukraine and later to Moscow, hand-delivering a letter from President Zelensky to Vladimir Putin. His purpose, to quote, was to open a dialogue forum for peace, to build peace, because the war has to be stopped. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, and my guest today is an expert in Indonesia, and he's been carefully watching Asia's response to the Ukraine war. Thank you for having me here. My name is Nobuhiro Aizawa of Kyushu University. I'm an associate professor at the School of Social and Cultural Studies. Domo arigato. Arigato gozaimasu. Thank you for joining me. Widodo's carefully worded statement about ending a war, but not necessarily pointing fingers, is emblematic of Asia's response to the Ukraine invasion, to the extent where a UN vote for sanctions against Russia earned the muted response of most Asian countries abstaining from voting. It's definitely muted, and I think every country wanted to be silent as much as possible. Mm. You're right that it was split, like Vietnam and Laos was the only two countries that went against the resolution to disqualify Russia. And Myanmar and Philippines was the one who's for it. But of course, Myanmar was represented by not the military junta who's controlling mm. the power right now, but the former NLD appointed. So maybe you can um, count or discount depending on where you are. You know, other six countries, which is the dominant uh, majority, has abstained. And that really speaks to itself that they wanted to stay away from making any clear choices on this uh, conflict on Ukraine. Mm, but the abstaining, the neutrality, doesn't just extend to this measure, this response. Absolutely. It undercurrents everything. Nobody is really trying to choose a side between mm -hmm. Ukraine or condemn anything that Russia is doing. Mm -hmm. There's an, an attempt to maintain the status quo, almost. Mm -hmm. It's status quo, but also the question is the key here because just the example we were talking about trying to disqualify Russia from a certain international setting. Yeah. Disqualification or maybe more sanction is not a choice, is a much more of a fair way to explain their neutrality. Mm. Right? They're not saying yes or no to the action of Russia itself, but it's more about yes and no to the reaction of the international community. I see, and that's I where see, they yeah. are trying to mute themselves. Mm. Because uh, even though you have a same voice against the action of Russia, maybe you have a very diverse position on how to react. And just the fact of sanctions directly, I guess, if we want to bring that up, there are countries that would be against that as just a concept of doing it. And they don't see it as we're doing this against Russia. Mm for their actions against the Ukraine, mm -hmm. we just don't like the concept of sanctions. Yeah. So there are many versions of that. So I would uh, say there will be three type of that. So first, of course, they don't like the act of sanction mm -hmm. to be legitimized in the international community. That's one group. Like, of course, if you look at the NATO-led collective, praising the collective sanction, is 
in a way, from Southeast Asian country, a question mark mm. because Southeast Asia has historically been in the victim side of sanctions. Okay, yeah. So uh, if you look at this in Southeast Asian um, context, you wouldn't be in a position to praise sanction, right? Mm, to mm. praise the effectiveness of sanction. Everybody talk about how Germany, Japan, and everybody successfully joined the sanction, but in Southeast Asia, no. I mean, we can't praise that. Yeah. So that's, of course, you know, one major explanation mm, why mm. they will abstain from those positions of sanctioning. So another application of it would be, why are we doing it in this instance when, for example, there were no sanctions put against the United States when they invaded Iraq? You know, what is it that makes the Russian invasion of the Ukraine exceptional and therefore something that needs to be sanctioned in this instance? Yeah, definitely. So that double standard, right? A majority of countries in Southeast Asia will see this collective action has a double standard in behind. They didn't have this kind of collective sanction against actions in like say Syria. Yeah. Right? But yeah. now they do. So where's the difference? Mm. Is is basically another strong argument why they abstain. So if they didn't vote for it during the Syrian crisis, we will not do it on the Ukrainian crisis too, which is a different position of, say, coherence and their attitudes on international relations. Mm. So that argument also explains the Southeast Asian choice of abstaining. Yeah. Sorry, you said that there was a third one? Yeah, third one is, of course, more of a cost and benefit thing. You mm. know, So they abstain because of the cost and benefit, or maybe even they will vote no, like Myanmar and Laos did. It's because they're reliant on Russian defense procurements. How extensive is the reliance on Russia for, for things like arms and, you know, even just basically on economic factors and that sort of thing? Up to, like, say, 2019-20, like, Vietnamese had, like, more than 80% reliance on Russian arms procurement. Yeah. Right? That's very, very heavily mm. reliant. So the rule of respecting sovereignty is one thing. But another thing, if you think about national security, you can't just put your defense procurement relationship at risk for this because international principle are uh, one component of the national security, but defense procurement is also one component of national security. Mm. So you have two different, you know, conflicting national security issues. And the more you are relying physically on the Russian procurement, it is very rational for you to abstain or to say no to a sanction against Russia. So yeah. that explains Vietnam, 80% plus. Even Laos, they have 40% more. And Laos was actually planning to rely more on Russia because if you look at Laos' geopolitical position facing China, who else can help your national security? Mm, it's mm. natural for them to choose Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, for those countries, when you think about cost and benefit, the choice is rational for them to say side with, not side with, but don't condemn. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, when you look across the region that you are not surprised by 
the neutrality, the lack of response that has been coming from Southeast Asia. Even just looking at the principles of security Mm. already explains the political choice of neutrality or political choice of abstaining on resolution. Yeah. Okay. So let's move it away from things like resolution and those sort of things. What about just in basic sentiment of Russia, you should not be invading a neighboring country. I'm referring here directly because I, I know you're an expert in Indonesia, the response of President Yoko Widodo, which was unspecific, but he did tweet, and I'm sure there were a lot of thought put into these three words, yeah. stop the war. Yeah. And you can interpret that in a myriad of ways. Mm-hmm. So please interpret. What was your thoughts on that as an official response from the leader of quite a large country and an it important is. country? Yeah. And we can't forget that they were the chair of G20 at that time. It's a major position that they took. What's significant about it is not, you know, they're just saying no to, for example, NATO support to Ukraine to keep fighting, right? Mm -hmm. Because no war is to stop resisting it as well. That's a one way of political interpretation. So, so Russia could go, look, we have their support. He's tweeted to say, stop the war. Hear that, Ukraine? Exactly. Stop, stop resisting us. Exactly. So yeah. that gives Russia a space for them to be able to negotiate. And also for Ukraine, of course, Indonesia is trying to say, well, we are saying stop the war, meaning stop atrocities, right? Yeah. So yeah. no genocides. I mean, Indonesia is has a series of experience of genocides as well in own country. Mm. So um, Indonesia knows the horror of it. So this is the word that both Ukraine and Russia can interpret in their own benefit, which gives Indonesia as a G20 chair to be able to talk to both and to be as being looked at, you know, contributing to the the bigger society. Of course, one side will not consider it one way, but at least for Ukraine and and, and Russia, there's still a negotiating space. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was a very, very calculated position that Indonesia has made. Mm. And was that sort of response seen from other countries in Asia as well? A tweet is hardly putting out a statement or a mm-hmm. press release or anything like that or or getting up at a podium and making a speech. It's three words put on a social media platform. Yeah. But I think it cemented the kind of position. Of course, Indonesian officials, but not Indonesian officials only, but other countries in Southeast Asia, they neither legitimize Russian action and also they neither endorse the NATO support mm. of ongoing resistance. So I think that has been the code of consensus on where to start from. Of yeah. course, there are you know, individual figures that will not you know, follow that line, but that's the code setting mm. that Jokowi has made uh, during that time. It was a pretty clear and a pretty uh, risky, you know, voice, but it seems to have gained uh, position. Maybe some countries like smaller states like Cambodia, they really went against Russia because Cambodia is, in Southeast Asia at least, is one of the countries who had a lot of border conflicts and also state-to-state war during the 1970s. Mm, um, so mm. they had more stronger position in respecting sovereign rights. So they were more inclined to be with 
the Ukraine. Yeah. But I think other than that, uh, stop the war, mm. regardless of the principle, gained more popularity. Okay. All right. So if I could then change the conversation slightly. So despite an effort to remain neutral, there have been economic implications yes. uh, for Asia, surely through a, just on a disruption level for trade and supply chains. Mm-hmm. So has that been a significant economic impact? Absolutely. And that explains why Jokowi's position of end the war gained popularity, because when governments want to consider security issues, it's not just sovereign security, but it's more about political stability mm. in every country. Political stability can be undermined with a lot of economic shocks, and which one of them could come from this, you know, Russian invasion? Because you know it will damage the food supply, mm-hmm. energy supply, and many other commodity supplies. Right, like one of the major thing was like fertilizer. Fertilizer was in shortage because countries like Indonesia imported so much from Russia. Yeah. We have to remember that not just Southeast Asia, all over the world, but you know they were just trying to recover from the COVID negative shock, right? Mm-hmm. And you have this Russian invasion to Ukraine that disrupts the, the global market when they wanted to kind of recover from the economy. For them, it's a crisis on top of a crisis that you have to stop before it goes to even another crisis. Yeah, yeah. So I think the sense of urgency on the economic situation was the foundation of why they have to appeal to stop the war rather than making an eternal resistance (laughs) in upholding sovereign rights, because that gives a more internal political risk Mm. on each leader in Southeast Asia. It's interesting just how important the economy is that uh, despite everything that Russia is is doing at the moment with with its invasion, countries still want their gas. Trade doesn't stop. The money still needs to flow. The resources still need to move. Exactly. We all need to get it from somewhere and Russia is still the best place to get it for some countries. Mm -hmm. Especially those wheat supplies. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there are pretty significant change in the food consumption culture in, say, Southeast Asia, that it's not only the rice that is the source of carbohydrates of their daily life, it's also wheat base, like those instant noodles. And those are heavily produced based on uh, wheat supplies from Russia, Ukraine, and so forth. So I think that also explains, you know, food, energy are like the main two source of managing the society. Mm. So if you mishandle that, you're going to lose power. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think it is an urgent and then it's an inherent choice that you prioritize to stabilize those supply first. The bread and circuses are important to every exactly. politician, I'm sure. So. All countries are watching China's reaction in the conflict. Uh, So let's uh, kind of dwell on that for a moment, if we can, with supporters of the Ukraine hoping at best, I think, that they remain neutral in all of this. Although Xi Jinping has met and is very friendly towards Putin. So what do you expect from China going forward in the conflict? Yes, this is a very split reaction within Southeast Asia, for Mm. sure. You would definitely like to have the conflict stop as early as possible, as Joko Widodo said. Mm. So if Chinese action, meaning the friendship with Putin, (laughs) gives a leverage to stop the war, I think that will be very much welcome in itself. But of course, that 
may also give another anxiety when, I mean, if China can do that, it's a huge Chinese diplomatic success, which means that the kind of Chinese political leadership and influence over the region, which is already quite significant, Mm. can only grow. And of course, a unipolar China is not what other Asian countries would like. One way, you know, stopping a war uh, with the help of China is a very welcome action. But at the same time, this could lead to a politically unipolar China. Yeah, yeah. May not be the outcome that the Southeast Asian countries, especially those who are closer to China, like Vietnam and the Philippines. Uh, let's pivot it then. If there's those benefits, if China would get something out of being the country that promotes the peace, what is stopping them, in your view, of doing that? Why aren't they taking that step? They are remaining neutral officially, but at the same time, Xi Jinping is taking that extra step of appearing friendly with Russia. What's behind the stance then? I may not be correct, but I'm sure, you know, if you look at Xi Jinping's remark, I think they're all very locked into denying the kind of U.S.-led regime of political legitimacy, Mm. right? China wants to be the legitimate leader. I don't think the leader just in the region, but in a more broader world. Yeah. And they will pay the cost to do that with any partners, which includes Russia. Mm. So I think it's really about how you legitimize their leadership. China can use this kind of a negotiating position of Russia-Ukraine relationship as another addition to their legitimacy. Yeah. So if they claim legitimacy and if the record is there, it gives an easier position to create a legitimate power projection to the neighboring countries like in Southeast Asia. Mm. So, you know, it could be the one-party state legitimacy (laughs) or Chinese domestic legal legitimacy, casting over the territorial borders, you name it. You you have all these, the Chinese concept of, I'm not sure how exactly is in English, but the sphere of the words, word power (laughs) influence. So it's basically the ultimate form of Power is power over legitimacy and power over truth. Mm, mm. So what is the legitimate forms of power and what is the historical truth? You know, that's what at stake. Mm. So if we could just extrapolate a scenario for a second, many would be watching the invasion of Ukraine, noting the reaction of other countries in the region and or the lack of reaction. And thinking about how they could be applied in other scenarios, for example, if China decided to move against Taiwan. So what lessons do you think are being learnt in this instance? Mm. Yeah, this is a a very difficult question that I, at this point, still don't have a clear answer to it. You know, we could draw a line between the Ukraine and Taiwan, but of course, I acknowledge that many people consider that's apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. But even from the case of if a country has a neutral response towards Russia invading the Ukraine, Mm -hmm. then are they likely as well to have a neutral response if China moves against Taiwan or has aggressive actions towards Taiwan in any way? 
would sanctions be voted for if you didn't vote for them in the case of the Ukraine? Yeah, my guess is that they will abstain as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, that will be the case because I think if there is a military operation, especially, right, mm-hmm. um, um, there is no leverage, especially on the Southeast Asian country, to kind of make a counter negotiation over that. Mm. So, but the question is, if it's not a military operation, is it a non-military action? That's where the issue is difficult to foresee because, of course, the ultimate ultimate plan A of China is to do a non-military action. And when that is successful, that's when things are tricky, right? Yeah. Whether you have any political or collective action that goes against that, that's also hard to see. So at this point, I can't really see a very clear picture if China does this, Southeast Asia will do that. Yeah, so therefore, yeah. my answer right now here is most likely they will abstain. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that China has calculated that as well? Well, they might have, mm. but I don't think that's a major factor at this point. China doesn't want a hostile Southeast Asia, of course. If China to consider what happened in Ukraine could happen in Asia, I mean, that will give China a reason to be more friendly to Southeast Asia Mm. because that they will try to minimize the risk of Southeast Asia being a collective force that goes against their action on Taiwan. So maybe for Southeast Asian benefit, it's beneficial to make a stance that if there's something about Taiwan, (laughs) we will try to prevent that Mm, um, mm. because that will give China a more incentive to be more friendly to Southeast Asia rather than assertive to Southeast Asia. (laughs) You know, that negotiation, I don't see that happening. Maybe that is too difficult of a coordination, too intangible. to see the political profit of it. Yeah, yeah. So I think nobody's uh, betting on that action at this moment. Mm. It occurs to me that if much of Asia can remain neutral in the situation of the invasion of the Ukraine and are likely, or you can see it being possible, that they remain neutral if something happened against Taiwan, what do you think this says about our global citizenship where we can just essentially sit by and let this play out mm. without intervening directly when we see an injustice? That's also difficult to foresee. It also depends on how, when you say global citizen, whether this global citizenship is doing justice to your people or not is pretty much a defining factor. Mm. If the countries that we are talking about, like say Southeast Asian countries, there are countries that feels that the current global mechanism or the global system is not doing justice to their people, and therefore why would we care about it? Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. The kind of global citizenship argument tend to benefit the current developed nations, right? Mm. So if you are on the undeveloped side of the global system, why would you uphold a system that puts you in a, a, a rather inferior position? You know, the more you claim that, I think there will be more reaction to that, like 
we have to support ourselves. We can't rely on global society. We have to support ourselves. We will go by national interest rather than international interest. Yeah. So yeah. if the national interest is to gain more, say, economic benefit from China or Taiwan or whatever situation is, I think that will be the priority, and I wouldn't be surprised if that will be the reaction. I mean, we have to really, you know, think about you know what the leadership of every country is looking for is not to maintain international peace. Mm. I think it's more about trying to develop their people's welfare. That's what leaders are accountable for. Yeah, yeah. I think we can't mix that priority. If it's democracy, those aren't the people who are voting for you. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That was Nobuhiro Aizawa, an associate professor at the School of Social and Cultural Studies at Kyushu University, and you have been listening to Asia Rising. This podcast was recorded in Japan and produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.